We are in part five of our wake up series through the book of Isaiah. And I entitled the message, Waking Up to God's Wrecking Ball. So that's pretty subtle. Yeah. Um, And I want to just start with some thoughts. To me, as I look out, it is embarrassing our lack of the fear of God in America. It's embarrassing our lack of the fear of God in our churches, in our region. We really assume that we are calling the shots. We tell God the ministry we want to do and we expect him to bless it. Um, We want to sin and then tell him it's not a big deal and we tell him to get over it. Um, We want to follow other gods but demand that he rescue us immediately when it all falls apart. Here's what you must get your mind around, and you're going to hear this throughout the entire series of Isaiah. God will destroy when necessary. Some of us have been raised in a viewpoint that everything about God is puppy dogs and rainbows. That is incorrect. I have shared and will continue to share that when necessary, God will wreck you. And we need to understand that that is not an unloving thing. It is a loving thing. It is not just a necessary thing. It is a good thing. And the reason why is because of the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. God destroys his people to rebuild. God destroys his people for the purpose of rebuilding. It's not that God wants to destroy his people. It's that God burns and judges sin. So when sin is on his people, that's when the heat comes. It is not that he wants to wreck us and abandon us. It's that he wants to devastate that he would relay a foundation that would last. As a matter of fact, that is intensely loving if you had a child that was playing in the garbage dumps. And in that garbage dump, they continued to play in trash At some point, as a good parent, you'd say, stop playing with trash and get them out of there, right? You would not just leave them there and say, well, I'm just going to be a nice guy and I'll just abandon my leadership and let you do whatever you want. That's not going to happen. Just as a side note, I thought about this just last night as I was teaching the second service. Um, (laughs) Do you all remember metal trash cans? Anybody remember metal trash cans? I don't think that metal trash cans are really in vogue anymore. And what would happen was that over time, you were putting so much nasty material in there, it just ate through the metal, uh, kind of at the bottom, and it was kind of gross, and it would come off like in sheets. Um, (laughs) My mom came home one day, and my sister and I had filled them up with water, and I was inside splashing around in in the trash can and she's like Lance what are you doing I'm like hot tub right (laughs) now I don't know what kind of heinousness was dwelling in that water 
but there's a certain degree where good parents tell you to get out, right? And I'm like, what? I washed it, you know? I mean, how good are you going to wash a trash can that's metal and rotted? So the bottom line to all of this is that God looks at us and we do so many things that are self-destructive. And ultimately, as a good parent, he steps in and says, we're not doing that anymore. And he will actually need to break our rebellious spirit and flatten us so that he might rebuild us with something that is healthy, with something that is good, with something that will benefit us. He stops us from killing ourselves. That is a good God. What we're going to learn today in Isaiah is that God promised destruction upon his people. But every time he mentions it, there's always this code of hope that is interlaced within the message. There's always this idea of, I will devastate you. You need to fear me. I will shut you down. I will bring judgment upon your sin. You go, well, does God hate me? No, he hates your sin. And when you're so interlaced with your sin, you call it you. It's not you. And so he wants to rip that part away with a surgical skill, scrape away all that stuff from your skin and bones. So you might be you. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1, and the Bible's under the seat in front of you. It's page 566. I'm going to give you a little uh, history lesson because what we're about to read doesn't make a lot of sense until you know this material. Some of you may be learners like me, which is I not only have to hear it, but it's helpful for me to write it down. That's why we put lines on your paper there to take notes. You might want to take some of these notes. I will also be posting, as I do each week, my notes online on the city. If you're not on the city, you can't get the notes on the city. So I need you to kind of do that. Uh, the notes on there are, I give you all the notes that I teach from up here that I'm looking at. It will help you out a little bit. But it's important that we learn two things. First of all, we learn a history lesson. Second of all, we learn geography. So we're going to throw up the first map, uh, which is the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, y'all know that Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, had 12 sons, and that's where we got these names. It's not like they thought of some magical name. It was the kid's name. That was his allotted inheritance land, and so it carried on, and these became the 12 tribes. Now, what you'll notice about these is a couple things. In the northernmost portion, we have two particular tribes named Naphtali and Zebulun. Uh, they would be, later on, the region of Galilee. So if you remember Jesus' home base, that was that region. Um, you'll notice that Manasseh has two pieces. They have an enormous allotment, East Manasseh, West Manasseh. Um, and you can read the story about why there were some tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan River and why some were on the western side. Um, but in the bottom, there's two tribes in particular named Judah and Simeon that kind of hung together. Now, in 931 BC, we are going back now approximately 3,000 years. This was the era of King David, the giant killer. His son Solomon took the throne, the wisest man that ever lived. After Solomon was done... 
God brought down judgment upon Israel and they began to schism. They broke apart with infighting. They had a north-south civil war. What happened was, is that 10 of the tribes remained together and the two southern tribes remained together. We now had a north versus south. Now, what we're going to do is transfer to the next slide. And if we could leave the next slide up, the entirety of the message because of what we're going to be talking about is that you'll notice here we now have a northern portion, we have a southern portion, and we have a bunch of nations around it. This is where our history lesson begins. The most important thing that you need to know for today is that the north and south have nicknames. And they're referred to by their names, and they'll interchange the names as they're talking. So maybe you want to write this down. But the northern portion is known by four names at least. The first is called the north, right? That's probably the most rare, but it helps us understand where it's located. It is also known as Israel. You go, well, isn't the whole thing Israel? Well, it should be, but it's split in half. So it is known as Israel. It is also known by its capital city, which is Samaria. Whenever Samaria is mentioned, it's referring to the north. It is also referred to as Ephraim. Why? Because when you saw the breakout of the 12 tribes of Israel, the most powerful tribe in the north was Ephraim. So it is known as the north, Samaria, Ephraim, and Israel. All right? The South also has nicknames. Three are primarily used. One is South. The other one is its capital city of Jerusalem. And its most powerful tribe, Judah. So when we open up Isaiah chapter 7, he's going to start throwing out all these phrases. And you need to be able to track with where we're talking about. If he says Ephraim, it's north. If he says Judah, it's south. If he says Samaria, it's north. If he says Jerusalem, it is south. When you get those locked into your mind, you can track with him as he's talking through it. Those were all familiar names at the time. Now, there are a bunch of other characters that are going to come into play here that are very significant. In 744 B.C., Assyria got new leadership. Assyria are the big bad bullies up north. Okay, you'll see them up here on the top. They got a new leader with a stupid name, so I didn't want to bother talking about it. But uh, this guy um, ended up being a very charismatic leader, catalyzed the nation, and he immediately looked for stuff to attack. Now, when God put Israel into the promised land, he put them into a beautiful land. I know you don't think of it that way. I know that a lot of times whenever we mention Bible stories, you automatically think sand and camels. That is not correct. As a matter of fact, the only sand, dirt, camel, deserty area is actually down in the south and towards the Dead Sea. I want you to picture it this way. When you picture the Greek Isles, you're actually picturing this same water piece on the other side. When you think of Turkey, you don't think about that, but Turkey is the other side of Greece, and it is all coastal. They are right on the coast, and it is beautiful. As a matter of fact, the majority of Israel is, has the exact same topography, 
has the same rainfall, has the same weather patterns as Northern California. So what we do not realize is that Jesus grew up in the foothills. There are rolling foothills. There are green grass, beautiful trees. You can walk through where the rivers flow out of Dan, one of the areas. There's beautiful forests that you would take pictures in, and it's green and it's lush. That's why this whole area is the Fertile Crescent. It's the idea that you have a lot of land that you can do agriculture on. So when big bad bullies want to go beat up on somebody, what do they want? They want the best land. So they always set their sights on attacking downward. Now, in that area, you can imagine it's pretty crowded. There are a whole bunch of countries that want a piece of what's going on. And indeed, there's a series of them. They're all going to come into play in about five minutes. Syria and Aram, I want you to think of them together. The Arameans, if you ever heard that, are from Aram. Aram and Syria are the same place. Their capital is Damascus. They're one group. Now, they sometimes like Israel and sometimes don't. But at this point in history, they were becoming buddies with Israel, the north. We all know the Philistines. That's where the Goliath guy came from. They're over there on the left bottom. And then there's the Edomites down below, right? Now, for now, the only thing you need to know is that in 744 BC, when the big bad bully of the north came down to attack, the little guys all made a coalition to defend themselves and to fight back. Well, all of them except Judah in the south. King Ahaz, who was leading it at the time, decided that he didn't want to be part of the team. Now, granted, he didn't like any of those other people, so he didn't want to engage with them, and they probably weren't good guys in the first place. In our story, there are no good guys. Everybody's messed up. That's why we're reading a book about how the whole nation came to an end, right? We're reading a book about judgment, about how God shut down his people group because they were so far from him, right? Well, no good guys. So anyway, the south where Isaiah lived, Isaiah spoke down here. They decide they don't want to be part of this big treaty, so the big treaty turns on them. How irritating is it when you're trying to make a treaty to go fight the big bad bully and you got a kid in your backyard that won't play with you? So they said, let's beat him up, put our puppet king in, he will be a part of us, then we will rebel against great Assyria. Well, the South wasn't about to stand for that. So they sent a whole convoy of money up to the big bad bully and said, hey, can I be on your team? Now we have them going, well, absolutely you can. Sure you can. You're going to give us money? Absolutely. We will just kill you last. (laughs) And that's where our story begins. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1, let's pray for the word. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to engage with your word again this morning. What a beautiful way to start our day is in remembering that you are in charge. God, would you humble us? And there are many of us, Lord, who are arrogant in our own hearts. Lord, we believe that we are calling the shots, and we are not. So, God, I ask that your conviction would rain down through this message. There are others of us, Lord, that are already blown up by you, and we need to be restored. There's some, Lord, that have come in and we've been your kids for quite some time. We are soft in your hands, but the enemy has been picking on us. 
And we need to know that we are shielded and loved and encouraged. Holy Spirit, you're the only one that can divvy out the message appropriately. And so we hand over to you. We are not interested in a man teaching us information. We are interested in you imparting truth. God, be glorified here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Here we go. Chapter 7, verse 1. Should be a little easier since we know the characters. In the days of Ahaz, that's the south's current king. He is the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. That's the leprosy king that was in charge when Isaiah first came into our knowledge. He is the king of Judah. Then there is Rezin, the king of Syria. Remember, that's the little crew up north. The Syria and Aram, they're the same group. Their king's name was Rezin. And then the king of the north was Pekah, the son of Ramalia. They came up to the south to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Now, what just happened? They all want to beat up on the kid that's not going to play. Yeah, right on, moving on, verse 2. When the house of David, meaning the south, King Ahaz, was told that Syria is in league or in a treaty with Ephraim, the north, the heart of the southern king and the heart of his people shook like trees of the forest shake before the wind. Why? He's outnumbered and they will squash him. He has yet to make a plan with a big bully. That's going to come later. And the Lord said to Isaiah, let's pause for a moment. Here's what I think is intriguing. It will say in the Bible, and the Lord said, and then someone argues. By definition, the Lord is the master. What he says goes. Anything that says, and the Lord said, the next response should be, yes, sir. It is not, I'll take that under advisement. It is not, I'll think about that. It is, it is certainly not, I will argue with you. The Lord said, you roll with that. Cool? All right. It says, and the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and She'er Yashuv. Your son. His first son's name means the remnant shall return. It's a dumb name. I get it. However, if you're a prophet and you're all in, your kids are named prophetic stuff, right? So his son is going to come with him as a prophetic illustration. Now, you would think, well, that's a pretty encouraging name. A remnant shall return. Well, that is awesome. But the only way you can get a remnant is if everybody's destroyed in the first place. So it's a bad news, good news scenario, which is exactly what the book of Isaiah is. I want you to go out to meet Ahaz, the king, you and She'er Yashuv, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Do we care about where that is? No, we do not. We only care about what Ahaz was doing down there. What's he doing? He's checking the water supply. Why? Because he's going to get attacked. If someone is going to attack a city like Jerusalem, which is highly fortified, they're probably not going to get in. So what's the only way to take out the city? Lay siege. Everybody know what a siege is? Siege means I can't get in the wall, so I'm going to starve you out. Eventually, you'll open the gates and let me in. That's what a siege is. It can last for years. So the first thing that you need is a water supply 
or you're never going to last the siege. So Ahaz was checking his water supply. Will I be able to last this? He's scared out of his mind. But look at what God said. God said, Isaiah, I want you to say to him, verse 4, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. Those are commands. Some of you need this message right here. And here's your message. Do not let your mind wander to circumstance. Lock it in on Jesus and don't take your eyes off of him. If you do, you're going to give them extra credit that they don't deserve. Uh, Let's talk about the probably overused analogy of when Jesus walked on water. When Jesus walked on water, we all go, wow, that's amazing. But of course, he's the son of God. He probably can do that kind of thing. Until you realize he called out Peter. And Peter walked on water. Well, that should be even more astounding because Peter is not the son of God. And yet now we have him walking on water. And everything was awesome until he did what? He took his eyes off Jesus. We all know this story. He began to look at the wind and the waves. And he began to realize, I should not be able to walk on water. And that consumed his thoughts. His faith diminished. And he began to sink. Now, here's how cool Jesus is. Instead of going, look at you, you idiot, you just fell. He reached out his hand, grabbed him, and instantly they got in the boat. Here's what's going to happen when your faith falls, when you have an incredibly loving God. He's going to catch you, and he's going to bring you back into the boat. But here's the point. Could we have walked on water longer? What is the difference? The difference is we get our eyes on circumstance and take them off of Jesus. So now we have a king who's freaking out. And God says to him, don't you dare let your mind wander. Lock in with me. Take every thought captive. Focus. What are we doing? I have this battle for you. Do not worry. Now, it's easier said than done. How many times has somebody told you not to worry and you still end up worrying, right? I mean, we get it. I certainly do. Do not worry because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Who is that? The king of Syria and the king of the north. Don't worry about those guys. I know they have devised evil against you, saying, verse 6, let us go up against the south, Judah, and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up our puppet king, the son of Tobiel, as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people And look at the last line of verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Some of us need to underline that one, right? If you will not stand firm in faith, you're not going to stand at all. What did he just tell him? Within 65 years, there will no longer be a people group in the north. You go, well, well, that's interesting because actually in 722, it didn't take 65 years. In, In 722... They came through and and took over the north and made them pay tribute. And so why are we talking about 65 years? Because within a 65-year period, Assyria came through, devastated them again, exiled their people out, put in Gentile people in, and we suddenly had the Samaritans. Everybody know the story of the Good Samaritan and why the Jews didn't get along with them? That's why. Because they were a mixed race, a half-breed race 
of Assyrians people they populated in and they took the Jews out. When they did that, it ruined them from being a people group. It only is going to take a few short years to wipe them out politically, but to knock them out as a people, that will happen within 65 years. All right, here's what I find interesting about all this. God is giving King Ahaz a chance, a choice. He's warning him. And what seems to be interesting to me about that is it's almost like before God brings in judgment, it's almost like he asks you whether you want to be a part of it. I'm going to storm in against sin. Do you want to get rid of your sin or do you want me to take you out? And it's almost like he's practical about it. I just want to be honest to you. I don't know how many of you, and I'm certainly not going to ask for a show of hands. Uh, I will raise my hand, but I don't want you to raise your hand. But how many of you have ever felt like God whispered to you about sin in your life warning you? Get it out of your life. Get it out of your life. And it's almost like he is patient. It's that same quiet voice. Hey, can you get that thing out? I don't like it. I've been talking to you about it for a couple years now. I want you to get it out. And then it almost seems like the Holy Spirit comes in and goes... You have heard all the messages, right? Do you need me to replay them for you on your machine? Because God's been downloading warning to you. I'm just going to tell you, you don't have forever. He will shut you down. I'm just warning you. God doesn't want to wipe you out. So he gives you options and says, I'll tell you ahead of time. I'm coming in. Now, that is a beautifully kind thing to do. He doesn't owe you anything. He can just come storming in, boom, blow up everybody and walk away. That is his right. That's probably more just. But because he is a gracious and compassionate and kind God, he actually gives you a heads up. Do you want to be wiped away? Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Why would you need to talk to somebody again? Because they're not listening to you the first time. And he said, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as the grave or as high as heaven. You can ask me for proof that I'm in this. If you're scared, I'll give you proof. What do you want? You can ask me anything. I'll give you a sign. Now, that sounds incredibly generous. Look at his response. No, thanks. Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to a test. Now, that sounds super honorable because you're not supposed to test the Lord. However, that is all feigned respect. Ahaz is not a good guy. The only reason that Jerusalem doesn't get taken out here is because God is gracious to them and that there is still a remnant in the land that God is honoring. Ahaz is not a great Christian guy. He's not a good God follower. And so, verse 13, Hear then, O house of David, God said, uh, excuse me, that um, he told through Isaiah, Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Do you want a sign? No, I'll give you one anyway. Here's the sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. You familiar with this passage? You guys know this. You've heard this before, right? And a virgin shall conceive and, and bear a son, and his name will be called what? God with us. Who's that talking about? Jesus. And we all immediately go there. Why? Because that's what the New Testament said. The New Testament said, yeah, that's Jesus. And we all know that the virgin's name was? 
Mary. I mean, we kind of have this one down, right? Here's the problem with it. There is a sign that before that child who's about to be born is 12 years old. You go, 12 years old, how do you know that? Because that is when a Hebrew boy becomes a man under the law, responsible for his actions. Before he is 12, they will shut down. They will be devastated, right? And and he begins to reveal this. Before the boy knows how to refuse good and evil, before 12, the land in whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The north will be deserted. Syria will be deserted. God will shut them down. Here's what's interesting. God didn't need 12 years. Within two years, both those kings will be killed. God will follow through on this, and he will shut them down. But it says, within 12 years, once he turns 12, he will be eating what? Curds and whey, like Little Miss Muffet. That's the only thing that we know about curds, right? No, it was curds and honey, but we always think of curds and whey. Not quite sure what whey is, but I know that curds is like yogurt from milk, all right? The bottom line is, by the time he's 12 years old, not only are those two guys dead, But the land will be turned from an agricultural rich place with vineyards and cultivated fields to subsistence living. It will be that wiped out. You're going to have to go back to what you can only make through milk. So who is this? Who's Emmanuel? Now, there's a bunch of guesses, right? Like they'll say, um, well, I know it had to have a fulfillment. And indeed, it had a fulfillment in the day of Isaiah. He told him, I'm giving you a time frame. This kid will be born. This will happen. And it all happened in the time frame. So who is that kid? I know that ultimately it cycles back around like most prophecies do and finds ultimate fulfillment in the Messiah. But who is the instantaneous Emmanuel? Here are the guesses. Right? We all do options here at Bridgeway. Here's some options. Some people say it's Isaiah's second son. All his sons were named something prophetic, so his second son was going to be called Emmanuel, God with us, and the virgin was his wife. Well, the problem with that is he already has a wife. She already had a kid. She is not the unmarried lady. She's already married. And they go, well, no, 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 no. His first wife died and he got another one. Wait, what? How did you get that? Now you're kind of stretching, right? And then they go, well, King Hezekiah, the next king to come in, come in, he was the good guy. So he will be the God with us as he restores it. Problem with that? He's already 25 years old. Whoops. Well, that didn't work. So who is this? I'm going to suggest to you, he's a nobody. The purpose of the message was to give a time frame, not to give a name. There's going to be a woman who is not yet married. The word there is not in Hebrew, virgin. That doesn't happen until the New Testament quotes the passage, makes it virgin to speak of Jesus. The word only means an unmarried woman in Hebrew in the Old Testament. So we have a woman who's not married yet. Within the time that she gets married and has a son, he will not yet be 12 years old before this comes to pass. It's only a time frame issue. Later on, it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ to perfection. Verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. When was that? This is the beginning of our whole message. The story. 931 BC. Ephraim the north split from Judah in the south. 
When that civil war happened and there was so much bloodshed and problems and chaos, he said, you haven't seen a problem like this since a couple hundred years ago. What am I going to bring upon you? Assyria. Right after that, he said, God will whistle for Assyria to come like a plague upon the land and God will humble Israel and devastate their land. Now that is supposed to irritate them for two reasons. Number one, Assyria is one of the nastiest, scariest people in warfare in all of ancient history. So first of all, they're supposed to be nervous. Number two, they hate those people. Of all people to come wipe them out, really? It had to be Assyria? Assyria is like the scum of the earth. They're the barbarians. They're the godless. They're the pagans. They're... Do you remember why Jonah went to the other end of the earth not to minister to them? He was supposed to go to their capital city of Nineveh. He's like, I'm not doing that. I hate those guys. So who does God pick to humble them? The people they hate the most. The Assyrians were also incredibly scary in the sense that they did, as I've shared with you before, psychological operations. What they did is they came into a city. They did horrible carnage to the city. They grabbed live people, stuck them on poles, and hung them up alive around the city walls. They burned everyone else, and then they let a small crew go to run to the next city and tell you how scary they are. That was the Assyrians. You don't want to be taken over by these guys. They're bad news. Is it the fear or the humiliation that's worse? I don't know. But let me bring it practical to how it applies to you, how it applies to me. When God needs to humble you, he will humiliate you with the very thing that you look down on. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're wealthy and prideful. And you look down on everybody else that doesn't have money. You look at their cars, you look at what they have, and you look and go, seriously? You call that nice? What is that? Oh, man, come on, really? That's your house? You look and you go, you're wearing that? Where'd you buy that? And all times you have this smug attitude about you got the best stuff and look down on them and, and oh, clearly you, you know, you're poor and look at you. And, and this is embarrassing. Why would you even do that? And what's your job? Oh, how much do you make a year? Guess what God's going to do? He will crush you in money and humble you and humiliate you to where you now have to look up to those people. Why? Because your pride is the problem. So he will humiliate you. How about this one? You're not a Christian, right? So as a Christian, you look down on everybody else. God, why am I the only one that's going all out for you, Jesus? Why am I the only one that does everything right? Everyone else is immature. Nobody knows how to evangelize like I do. Nobody's doing it all. Look at all these people lost in sin. Everyone calls themselves Christians. They're sleeping together. They're doing this. They're doing that. Look at that. They got these addictions. There's no victory in Jesus in their life. God, I'm the only one that's righteous. Guess what's going to happen to you? Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. See ya. Thanks for flying. Why? You're going to trip on a heinous sin and it's going to be embarrassing. And everyone else is going to look at you and go, oh, look, the Pharisee fell. Oops. Why? Pride's your problem. And so he will take the very thing that you're looking down on and shut you down. That's what he's doing to Israel. It's supposed to be humiliating. It's the point. Then the Lord said to me, 
chapter 8, verse 1. Take a large tablet for everyone to see, like a big placard. Write on it in common characters that everyone can read. And write the phrase, belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Longest name in the entire Bible, Isaiah's second son. What a terrible name, right? I mean, from now on, we're going to call him MSHB, right? Because it's ridiculous. What does it mean? It means hurry to the spoil, quick to the plunder. It's what the enemies are going to scream when they run in and take over your town. That's what your son's name is? Yeah. I want you to write it on a placard as a prophecy because he's not even born yet. Write it down and everyone will know that it's a prophecy. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of blah, 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 to attest for me. <laughs> right? Now, whether these guys are good guys or not, it doesn't matter. They were respected in the community. And so he locked it down and said, do you see I'm writing this in advance? I'm showing you very clearly this is a prophecy. So when it comes to pass, you know that God has spoken. And I went to the prophetess, that's his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. We just took the 12-year time frame and shrunk it down to two years, and indeed, that's when it was nailed down. Do you understand that the Bible is not just a book? It's not just a collection of books? Are we all clear on how many hundreds of prophecies are in here? Depending on who you ask, there are between 22 and 30 specific messianic prophecies about Jesus that are fulfilled to a T in the book of Isaiah alone. This is not just a book. We have everything we need for life and godliness because it is the Holy Spirit breathed word of God. This is a big deal. It's why we pay attention to it. Verse 5, and the Lord spoke to me again, and I'll paraphrase what he said. Because you have rejected my leadership like a soothing river, I will bring upon you Assyria's leadership like a raging river that will storm its banks and wipe you away. You will not escape. And the question for us is this, what have we traded for God's leadership? America has rejected God. Can we all agree on that? America said, we don't want you. We don't want you to lead us. We don't like your ideas. We don't like your Bible. We don't want you telling us what to do. We don't want you getting in our face. Get out of our schools. Get out of our courtrooms. Get out of our lives. We have traded God's leadership for what? What has filled in the gap? How's that going for us? How is it going to go as a nation? Are we not going to see internal decay? You go, well, maybe there will be some economic benefit to it and blah, blah. Do you understand that right before Israel was destroyed was some of their greatest economic years, but their most spiritually debaucherous years? Then God wiped them off the face of the land. I don't care what things look like on the outside. What is happening on how many people are being hurt? As we turn away from the leadership of God, will more people be hurt in America or less? What are we trading for? What is so awesome? What other leadership is so fantastic? What? Our government? Seriously? That's better than God. No. I think God could probably figure the social security problem out. But I, anyway, uh, you know. Verse 11. 
For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people. Meaning, don't get caught up in what I need to judge, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the warrior God, the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. I'm going to give you four quick reasons why we must fear God. You ready? These are benefits to fearing the Lord. Number one, it keeps you on the straight and narrow out of destruction. It stops you from killing yourself. We make very, very bad decisions, but when we're paranoid that God's going to be disappointed, we make better decisions. That's it. Number two, God's strength will appear larger than your problems and your enemies. Right? Because if God is huge in your mind, then your problems aren't a big deal. If God is little in your mind, then your problems seem enormous. Number three, God's help only comes to those who fear him. You want God's help in your situation? Fear God. You don't want his help? Don't fear God. Number four, when you keep him in mind like this, your decisions change so he is glorified more often and your life begins to matter. You change on it what you do and God begins to move through you. We pick it up in verse 14. And he, God, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, north and south. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. The New Testament said that's talking about Jesus. He is the rock of offense. He is the stumbling block for the Jews. Why? Because he was a disappointment to them. They knew Old Testament prophecy. They knew their Old Testament backwards and forwards. When Jesus showed up and said he was the Messiah, they gave him a shot. They said, all right, miracle guy, if you are, run with us. Show us what to do. We'll even follow you in droves. I know you cast out demons. I know you raise the dead. I know you do stuff the Messiah is supposed to do. All right, when are we going to storm Jerusalem? Oh, here you go. Now you're on a donkey. We're going to go in. We're all going in to lead a revolution against Rome and we will be free. Finally, we have our leader. We will throw down palm branches and sing Hosanna. And I can't wait for him to take the throne. And what happened? Jesus rode into the city, messed with their temple and rode back out. What? That was it. We're done. We're not going to take in the throne. What are we doing? We're doing a revolution. Yes. No, we're not doing that. What are you? What are you going to do now? What do you mean? Oh, you're here for the inside stuff. What? That's not the Messiah. Wait, wait, wait. Who did you say you are? Oh, you're God. You're God. Listen, in my book, either you're God or you're not God. If you call yourself God and you're not God, that's called blasphemy. I'm taking you out. And they killed him. Now, of course, he died for the sins of the world. We know that, but they didn't know that. And you know what? They can, he continues to be a stumbling block all the way to this day. The Jews can't get over Jesus Christ because the way that they see prophecy is not the way he handled it. They didn't see that there's a big gap when he's going to return and set up his kingdom. They didn't see any of that, nor did they care. They're done with Jesus. Well, kind of. He'll find his way back in. It says this. Verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. 
I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. The righteous know that no matter how much judgment comes down, we close our eyes, hide behind the shield of faith, and cling to our Jesus. Verse 18 to 22, here's what he said, I'll paraphrase. When the land tells you to seek fortune tellers for your future help, because things are going badly, that is evidence they are lost. Why are you seeking the dead on behalf of the living? Should you not seek God for answers? As they reject life, it's going to get worse, and they're only going to get more angry with God, and they will walk headlong into darkness. Chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, meaning it is not forever. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. What did we just see? It just said this. When Assyria came in to storm down, who did they attack first? They devastated the two northern tribes, Naphtali and Zebulun. They got beat up first. They were put into anguish. But it's not forever. Why? Because Jesus showed up here, made his home base, and began his ministry there. It says the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He will bring back the joy of the nation and break the rod of the oppressor. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called. And there's four throne names. I know that because of Handel's Messiah, we think there's five. It's actually four. I know because of King James, we think there's five. There's actually four. Wonderful counselor is one. Mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. You know that passage too, right? That's famous. It's in Isaiah. All this stuff is in Isaiah. What's the point? Jesus Christ will come back, will set up his kingdom on earth in Jerusalem, will reign on earth and make it right, fulfill his prophecies to the Jewish people, restore them, and then he will be our king from there to eternity. Will it happen? 100%. We finish it out with this, a paraphrase. God has proclaimed destruction on the north, but they refuse to believe it, and they think they will bounce back. Does that sound like America? God will use both the Syrians and the Philistines for judgment, yet even in their judgment, they will not seek God, and God will rain down upon them. And all of this, his anger has not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. God's wrath burns the land. They fight with one another. Woe to those who even in times of judgment still prey on the weak. How do you think you're going to escape? God's hand is still stretched out in judgment. Okay, so what's the point of this whole lesson? Both God's judgment and God's Messiah are real. We do not get to get away with everything. Not the secret things, right? Because those are all the things that we hope nobody knows about, but God's been tracking them the whole time. It's what he's whispering to you about. He will deal with sin, and he does have a future. It may involve decimating you, but he will rebuild you. Why? Because he loves you. Healthy dads restore. Healthy masters of the universe rebuild. 
And even in the midst of some of the most severe judgment is hope and grace and love and compassion. Why? Because he doesn't want to wreck you. He will only do it if you resist him. So what is our calling? To repent. To be what he desires us to be. That he might be glorified. Let's close in prayer and I'll give you the closing challenge. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a walk through your word. Uh, May all of that sink into our hearts in the right way. God, you know what we need. You know that everyone was drawn here by you. May we know that. God, they were drawn here on this day to hear this message either as warning or comfort. Open our eyes and our ears in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the closing challenge for this morning is this. It's in the community hall. I want everyone to do it. It only takes two seconds. So as you're leaving, do this. As you walk out through the lobby, on your left-hand side is the community hall. When you go in there, on the back wall, we have three boards set up. And it has a continuum of where you are with God. Lost is on one side. I just feel lost. I don't even know what I'm doing. Two, I'm totally locked in and abiding with Christ. You take one of the pens, they're paint pens, and you put a dot for where you're at. Therefore, what you can do, and I need you to be honest, your name is not signed to it. I want you to be honest because I want you to see where God has you right now and where he's going to take you a year from now. We're going to post it up as an art piece so we can track on where we are at with the Lord. I want everyone involved. Amen?